0: Hello, this is Gary Miller, President of the University of Akron. We're honored to have you listen to our podcast series, Diverse Engineering, which is made possible thanks to the generous support of our gold sponsors, GPD Group and Continental Contatech. The University of Akron and our community partners are committed to the success of students from around the world and in our own backyard. We're especially proud of the contributions and successes that have resulted from the hard work determination, and dedication of our students of color. Please enjoy our podcast.
1: Welcome to Diverse Engineering, a podcast celebrating the stories, voices, contributions, and innovations of minorities to their fields of engineering. What does CAD, computer automated design, microphones, video games, color TV, wireless phones, artificial hearts, stints, and dishwashers all have in common? You guessed it, all were inventions or significantly improved inventions by historically excluded engineers. My name is Ebony Bond, I am a mechanical engineering graduate from the notable University of Akron and I will be your host for this podcast. This season honors minority professors and researchers in engineering at the university. You can expect to hear their stories about navigating their education and careers and hear about their research and the real-world impact that they are making through their research. For more information about our podcast and to stream past episodes, visit uacronedu forward slash diverseengineering. This episode titled From Impossible to Remarkable features Dr. Malik Elbulik. Here's what you should know about Dr. Elbulick. Dr. Elbulick received a bachelor's of science with honors in electrical engineering from the University of Khartoum in 1976 and a master's and PhD in electrical engineering from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology from 1979 to 1986, also known as MIT. From 1986 to 1989, he was faculty in the Electric Power Research Center at North Carolina State University. Since 1989, he has been a professor of electrical and computer engineering at the University of Akron. Dr. Elbulick has been a registered professional engineer in the state of Ohio since 1991. He has been involved in research and development at the NASA Glenn Research Center and the Ohio Aerospace Institute, where he was a summer research fellow for 23 years was an evaluator for the Accreditation Board for Engineering and Technology for Programs in Electrical Engineering for seven years, served on the Committee for Fundamentals of Engineering Examination at the National Council of Examiners for Engineering and Surveying for 11 years. Dr. Elvulik is a life senior member for the Institute for Electrical and Electronic Engineers, um, which is known as IEEE, and has had over 150 publications in IEEE conferences and transactions, which some of his papers have won prize awards. He was an associate editor for the IEEE Transactions in Power Electronics, the IEEE Transactions on Industry Applications, and an editor-in-chief for the Manufacturing Systems and Development Department of the Industrial Application Society Transactions, served on the Executive Board of the Industry Application Society and the Chair of Manufacturing Systems and Development Department. Dr. Elbulik has extensive international collaboration and recognition. He has given several invited talks and presentations on every continent but Australia and Antarctica. We look forward to sharing your story and your impact as a researcher. Thank you so much for taking the time from your 50 million obligations to join us here for the podcast today. We definitely
0: appreciate it.
2: Yeah, well, um, thank you, Epini, for uh, the nice introduction. And um, I hope I will be in the right perspective that you put me in. And I Mm -hmm. wanted to extend uh, my uh, thanks to Heidi Kressman, who invited me to participate in this podcast. And I hope that I will be able to share the experience that I had in engineering with you in this uh, short time.
1: Well, I'm sure we'll be able to cover it because you have such extensive experience in, in engineering. So right. um, before we get into that portion of it, I would like to talk a little bit about your background. So if you can tell us where you're from, and I'm kind of curious about what your relation to education was or the um, culture of education was where you're from.
2: Yeah, I um, I grew up in uh, in Sudan, a country in Africa. I think uh, in terms of education, really uh if I can go back, the uh, it has been limited, especially in villages where um, only men get educated into the religious institutes. And then uh, after that, they practice agriculture and, and uh, merchants. But then things improved in the um, mid-40s and 50s, and uh, women were not going into education until the 50s and you can say well the first women who graduated from high school is probably in the early 60s.
1: Wow I'm thinking you were talking college you're talking about even high school.
2: The high school yeah. Wow. yeah but then I uh, for me I, um, I went into elementary school which is that is in my village but then after that it's a very competitive system where um about a thousand students will go into a final exam from uh, high middle, from elementary school to uh, the middle school, and they won it 40. So out of a thousand, you want 40. And then uh, after that, uh, and they go to a different town. So uh, they buy from different uh, villages to one town, and then from many towns in the middle of school, they compete. To the high school also oh, wow. to go into the cities so you can see the it, it starts from the villages and it narrows down to to get you to the um to the high schools in the cities and then it comes to the university which is at that time there were only two universities three universities or one university one polytechnic and and, and one university which is the islamic university but I went to the University of Khartoum, in which I think when we uh, went for the final exam from high school to university, there were about maybe 100,000 and 5,000 have to make it to the university. And though we talk about the filtering of mm-hmm. only 5% to make it. So that is the education. But now things have grown up. Now in Sudan, there are about 40 universities. Okay. So you can tell now things have become very well. And also because people of my generation have taken it on themselves to get their kids. So the, 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 the expansion has been quite a bit in the past 40 to 50 years in terms of university education and even other, other levels of education.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Oh, well, I, didn't, I didn't know that. So I'm thinking of like kind of curious about like how you grew up there, but it sounds like maybe you didn't even really grow up where you were originally from, if you had to get shuffled around. Well, oh, you're shuffled around,
2: yeah. Right, you're right. And, and, and it's uh, the, at, at my time, most of the education is sponsored by the government. Okay. And so it's you're for, it is free, but uh, because you're not at home, you're always going to be in boarding schools, which is the room and board are all paid for the university. So I left my village at the age of 10. That was... Wow. At the end of uh, elementary school, mm-hmm. and then after that, I was in boarding school until the university. Mm-hmm. So I was out of the of my village. Yeah.
1: So how often do you get to see your family then?
2: Well, every two weeks. Every two weeks. When we were in middle school, the students organized that one weekend, half of the school will go to see their parents or family, and then the next weekend, and so it alternate every two weeks. It's very well organized mm-hmm. kind of this is the structure
1: so what was it like then growing up for you like what was the experience like for you was it like you're always in the books or
2: well i mean i i i did grow up in a in a village and and, and you can tell the a life of a village is a very uh very connected mm-hmm. so we're all kids and we're all playing and then uh, we when we go to the school It's very well structured that we go to school, and then we go home, and at home we do our work. The resources were limited at that Mm -hmm. time when I went to uh, elementary school. There was no electricity, Mm -hmm. so then you you're going to have a a lamp that is based on a candle, and then you sit around it and we do our study. Mm -hmm. When we went to middle school, it's a little better because the town has electricity. And so it's a very structured day in terms of the education. You go from 7 to 2 for classes. And then after 2, you go to um, you take the lunch or the, the dinner, they call it. And then after that, the whole uh, school take a rest. And then wow. we get up and do sports for about two hours. Then we had a break. And then we come and stay in classes to do study.
3: Mm-hmm
2: for two hours, then we come and eat supper, and then we have a break for one hour to relax, and then the it's all bell, mm-hmm. bell-oriented. So it's a very structured uh, way in which that you have to follow it, and if you don't follow it, wow. the penalty is hard. But I, I think that that did help in terms of the discipline mm-hmm. and, and getting uh, to to do your work, and then the the teachers are living within this with the students
1: Hmm. interesting interesting were you good at any of the sports
2: i mean we 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 do a lot of sports but i was mostly interested in soccer okay which is known here as football right now it changed to soccer yeah and i have a story to tell later or michael at mit when i joined i in my interest i said i play football Mm -hmm. and (laughs) and then in the in the dorm, the graduate dorm, when I live, I think they selected me and said, "Well, they want we want you to play for us." <laughs> and then when it came, it turned out that it's not the football I have in <laughs> mind. <laughs> and that was the first exposure to knowing that what we call football in Sudan and and maybe in Europe too, they call it mm-hmm. soccer over here. Mm-hmm.
1: You're like, what are you guys doing? Why are you using your hands? This <laughs> ball. <laughs> So you talk about MIT and you said like growing up you could either go to school at the time maybe to be something you end up being a merchant or something to that effect.
2: That is for the people who not educated at the beginning. They go to, these, to the Quranic or to the Islamic schools for a short time, especially the men. The women usually didn't have at that time other than very limited ones will go to school until maybe third year, fourth year in elementary, and then they get married, and then from there they were in the house and taking care of kids and so forth. But then the the men or the boys will go to the Islamic school, which is within the village, Mm -hmm. and uh, they they learn a lot of Islamic traditions, and then uh, after that they go into being a merchant or being uh, a farmer. But for me, I didn't do that. But I did work with my father in the farm and in in his store. But I still, all of my family, the twelve of us, we went to school.
1: So how did you know that? You know, you wanted to study engineering. If it, it doesn't sound like maybe you were exposed to it. You no,
2: know, that that is another story. So in our system, when you get in the high school, there are three tracks that you have to choose one. Mm-hmm. Uh, There is the art, science, and mathematics. So the arts are the people who go to the humanities, and the science are the people who go to the medicine, pharmacy, veterinary, agriculture, uh, different parts of science, geology, botany, and so forth. And then the mathematics, they go to the engineering. And this has a, a big story because my parents want me to be a doctor. Yeah. Because... The doctor is a lot needed in the village and in 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 the culture because people get sick and so forth. But the engineer is not something that is touched as much as a, as the doctor connection to the society. So wherever you, if you're good, your parents would like you to be a doctor. So I was planned to be a doctor,
3: mm.
2: but then. I was good in math, I was good in science, and I was good in arts. I could have done either <laughs> of them. A renaissance them, man. Okay. Either of them. But when they asked us to choose one, I chose the science. Okay. And then my math teacher said, no way. <laughs> I have to go into the mathematics because actually I was the top student in mathematics. And mm-hmm. he said, if you don't go, who else is going to go? Mm-hmm. So... Kind of an upsetting things to my parents.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: So I went into mathematics, and uh, I went into engineering, which is at the beginning we go to the School of Science before we go into engineering. We spend one year in the School of Science, and after that they, uh, we go into an exam because all of us cannot go into engineering. Mm-hmm. There are sixty of us who went into the mathematics, and only 200 have to make it to the engineering. That's another competition. Mm -hmm. So at the end of that year, I scored very well Mm -hmm. that the mathematics department wanted me to stay and become a professor in mathematics, that they were going to send me to graduate school and all of that. Mm -hmm. And my parents were very happy with that because the next to being a doctor is to be a professor Mm -hmm. in terms of respect. Mm -hmm. But then I felt I wanted to do engineering since I already put myself into that. And I decided to go into electrical engineering because it's more close to the mathematics. So I didn't take the choice of staying at the School of Mathematics and become a professor of mathematics after I go and do my graduate studies. Mm -hmm. So I went into uh, the uh, electrical engineering. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And again, the process went and I was the top one on it. (laughs) And then the university chose me to stay in the college and go to graduate school. Okay. So that's how the process of en- my my journey was engineering and how I chose engineering. Okay.
1: So you have a degree in engineering in your home country, but you also have a degree in engineering here.
2: I have a degree in engineering. Oh, I have bachelor's. the bachelor. I have the the undergraduate. And then uh, the idea is then after the bachelor is to apply to graduate school. Mm-hmm. And I applied to about 26 schools in England, mm-hmm. and uh, um, I got accepted in all of them to do graduate school. And then <laughs> I... Let's just pause for that. <laughs>
1: I applied to 26 schools, and I got into all of them. Okay, you can keep going now. <laughs> so, um,
2: but then what turned me on from England is that most of the faculty over there, they went and did their graduate work in England. Okay. And then one of the professors said to me, I think you should try to go to America because all of the professors here are duplicate of each other. It's the same kind of institution. And I, um, I had a cousin who goes to Cal Poly doing agricultural engineering. Mm-hmm. So I, I sent him a letter and um, what are the schools that do graduate school in electrical engineering? But Cal Poly happened to be, you can do a master's. So he, he sent me an application from Cal Poly, but he said, if you want, there is a, an institute in the East Coast. He didn't know it's MIT or whatever. He said, an institute in the East Coast. So the word institute for us is not like university. So I was still hesitant to word institute. But I, I got accepted at Cal Poly okay. for master. But then I went to the American Embassy and uh, and it is also called the American uh, Culture Center, and asked them what are the good schools for graduate school in electrical engineering, and they gave me a list, hmm. and the first one on the top it says Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so then the word institute that he said institute in the East Coast that my cousin said ring a bell now. Mm-hmm. So from there I started looking into the application and taking the TOEFL and taking different exams and so forth. And they all went well. And then of course, I got the acceptance from MIT. <laughs> and then that changed everything because I was supposed to go to Imperial College in England. That was okay. it. And That's where I canceled that. Doctor Diarru. Yeah, Brie Adderu- went for postdoc, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. So I was supposed to go to Imperial College and I didn't. And I was supposed to go to Kalpola, and I didn't. And so I just came to MIT, and that was how things got connected.
1: Mm -hmm. The rest rest is history. So how did you end up coming to the University of Akron? I'm kind of curious.
2: Yeah. After I finished my PhD at uh, MIT, actually, I was supposed to go back to Sudan. Okay. But I gave a promise to my wife that she will finish her degree bachelor degree here she has a degree in economics but what happened is that when we got a daughter and all of that she did not get to school so I decided to stay for a few years to let her finish her bachelor degree so I got an acceptance from North Carolina State University in the power group Mm -hmm. and I stayed there and during that time I applied for the permanent residency Mm-hmm. And my wife went and, and, and finished her bachelor's degree in economics from NC State. And um, once I got my permanent residency, things start changing. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> and I I decided to stay a little longer because also Sudan was going through tough times in terms of the economy and all of that. So I thought I would stay for a few years. Maybe I will I just gain some finance and and go back. And at that time NC State, I was a visiting professor. Mm -hmm. So they told me to stay maybe a year or two, and they will try to find a tenure track. Mm -hmm. But then, in the meantime, I found that there are other places where I could apply. Mm -hmm. And I was interested in the area of power electronics, which is my field of of, uh, graduate work. Mm -hmm. So I didn't know where Akron is or the University of Akron, except, except that the ad says that looking for someone in power electronics. So I applied. The interview went good, actually. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, uh, the department chair, CS10, pulled me and said, okay, how much you want, the offer. So we talked plainly about the offer. Mm -hmm. And it was very interesting because at that time, I had an offer from another school in South Carolina. And... He said, how about we just add a 2000 to that offer? Mm-hmm. So I accepted, and then I had to prepare and come to Akron. Mm-hmm.
1: So you came to the University of Akron because the ads mentioned something about power electronics, but what all do you teach?
2: So now I teach circuits 1, circuits 2, power electronics, modern power systems, and electric motor drives, plus the other graduate courses are the ones that I teach on a regular basis.
3: Mm -hmm.
1: Do you have a favorite that you like to teach?
2: I think power electronics. Power electronics,
1: that makes sense, that makes sense.
2: Actually, because I saw the student interaction with the course and the way they respond to it, regardless of the difficulty in terms of handling the exams and and, and the projects and so forth, Mm -hmm. it seems like they enjoy the course because also it is highly applicable. Mm-hmm. In in aerospace industry, in automotive industry, in in manufacturing, mm-hmm. in uh, in the utility, on, with all the renewable energy resources, mm-hmm. uh, transportation. So it, it seemed to have a wide range of applications, mm-hmm. but it is the student response to it that made me interested in more and more to make it more applicable and more in. Interactive.
1: We will continue our talk with Dr. Malik Elbuluk in just a moment, but first I want to thank you for listening to this diverse engineering podcast series featuring our diverse engineering faculty at the University of Akron. My name is Amara Gambrell, and I'm able to attend the University of Akron because of the diversity scholarships that I've received. These scholarships, which are offered through the College of Engineering and Polymer Science, make a huge impact in my academic success by reducing my financial need. This podcast is dedicated to making a difference for the next generation of underrepresented graduate engineering students. So if you would like to support a graduate student's academic career, please text WIE to 71777 or give online at edu forward slash giving forward slash WIE. So what was it like when you like first started teaching students versus like what it's like now?
2: Well. I have about the first time I started teaching was 1976 when I I was hired at the university as a teaching assistant. Okay. And then at MIT I was also a teaching assistant. So, and then at NC State I started teaching regular classes. So you can tell that I I started getting comfortable with the students and with the class environment mm-hmm. and. One thing that I liked about MIT is that the students, they challenged the TA pretty well. Mm-hmm. So that prepared me really well to stand in front of the students and answer questions. So it was, it was a good experience, although it was not really teaching, but it was tutorials. Mm-hmm. And uh, that, that helped a lot. Mm-hmm. When I went to NC State, I was teaching big classes. I remember a class which is Power Systems has about 150 students. Oh, wow. And another one which is uh, Elements of Control, which is close to 200 students. The classes became big to the extent that I need to raise my voice.
3: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
2: And the thing that happened to me is that I raised my voice to the extent it didn't go down. <laughs> then I was no, I'm known now for having allowed voice in class Mm -hmm. but it did turn out it's something that came as as a result of my interaction with the class Mm -hmm. so now I'm very comfortable with the class to the extent that I wanted to give as much experience and as much advice to the student Mm -hmm. and I tell the students you may you may have issues with the course but you have to (laughs) you have to you have to respect the fact that I had a lot of experience just being there. Mm-hmm. And so when I tell you something, it is for your benefit to do it. Mm-hmm. So that that I think is something that I, I, I like to transfer to the student, mm-hmm. regardless of whether they, they listen to it or not, is to relate to them the experience and just based on the fact that not I'm smarter than them, but I have been around for a long time.
1: Mm-hmm. So let's talk about that a little bit about he said the students might not like the experience of the class. So yeah. as he stated, I've had you as a professor mm-hmm. and I remember getting the test and being like, Oh my gosh, this is nothing like anything I experienced like in the homework or, or quizzes or whatever. And so my approach was I would go to the end of the homework section in the book and I would be in the, the bottom of beer's library trying to crack the hardest problems. Cause I'm like, okay, if I could figure this out, I can probably do better, be better prepared for his test. Now, I don't think a lot of students will maybe approach it like that or they might just become, you know, upset. (laughs) Like, why is it so hard? So what is your approach to, like, delivering tests or your philosophy on, I guess, the level of difficulty that you give students?
2: Well, I wanted to make a fundamental clarification. In engineering, we teach concepts. And so we want the students to apply the concept regardless of the problem. Mm -hmm. And I tell the student, I'm not trying to underestimate history, but in history, you're taught facts, and then you come and speak the facts. Mm -hmm. So there is nothing new. Here, I give a concept, whether KCL or KVL or or Ohms Law or whatever, Mm -hmm. but I can give it, I give you a circuit that uses this concept but then I want to give you a different circuit from the one I gave you on a sample test or on a homework on a quiz, and you should be able to apply the concept. Mm-hmm. The bad thing is that a lot of students they try to memorize. And I tell it's no, it's not a history class, mm-hmm. it's an engineering class, <laughs> and you have to apply the concepts. Mm-hmm. I tell the students when they come and say, What more can I do? Mm-hmm. I tell them the homework. <laughs> I tell no, I tell them, okay, you you find a book. That has the same kind of problems and look at the examples in the book so read the example but don't don't look at the solution Mm -hmm. okay and try to you know the solution is there work it out then if you can't work it out then you will go and read the solution then you will figure out what you were having trouble with so i think that is a very important part in engineering at Mm -hmm. least in terms of trying how to force yourself into the concepts
1: thinking yeah Which is interesting because I think when I came back to school, that was my approach. Because I think in high school, things can come so easy to you. You don't really have to put in that much work for it. But then in engineering, I can't just read the book the day before and then come and take the test because you have to actually practice the concepts. And so when I came back to school, I said, oh, well, I don't need to worry about cramming for tests so much. If I approach the homework, like I'm trying to learn so I wouldn't care about getting good grades on the homework. That's 10% of my grade. I really don't care. I don't care about copying this problem. I'm actually trying to learn. And so I ended up actually getting like 100% on testing basic EE when I came back. So I just wanted to <laughs> do my horn on, horn on that. <laughs> um, so I wanted to transition from, you know, the teaching and then go into the research side, yes, but sure. also... Say, so I think it's kind of interesting how, like, your parents wanted you to, like, go and be a professor. Yes. And then you ended up coming to be a professor, professor. anyway. Did did that, like, end up appeasing them? Or Absolutely.
2: Yeah. Absolutely. Except, yeah. Ex- especially my dad. Yeah. yeah especially yeah. my dad. My mom didn't go to school, so. She, she raised, couldn't go to she, school. She raised 12 of us, so that was a lot of work. Right. But uh, my dad, my dad was very fascinated by a professor. I think it's closest to a medical doctor in terms of the society respect to a profession.
1: Interesting. I just thought that was like, oh, wait, you actually did end up finishing, I guess, their dream for you in some ways. Um, You came to Akron because you were interested in power electronics. Electronics. Is that your main area of research? Do you do other areas of research, or is it mainly power electronics?
2: Well, power electronics and its applications, because the applications of power electronics is two applications is power supply design. All of these computers are connected to some power supplies, fed, feed them some DC voltages and AC voltages and different uh, carts and all of that. So power supply design for different applications. And then electric motor drives. Electric motor drive, or they call it adjustable speed drives, is the area that has to do with all of the transportation. Mm-hmm. Motors are in everything. Mm-hmm in automotive in aerospace Mm -hmm. so
1: my refrigerator
2: yeah power electronics and its application but what power electronics is power electronics is an interface between the utility and whatever that they are applied for example when you think of power electronics now as an interface between renewable energy resources and the utility solar energy wind energy fuel cells, those, they all give you different electricity. Mm-hmm. But to match that electricity, to connect it to the grid, that's where power electronics interface come into play. And what is happening here is that these resources, the the, the sun or the wind, they're not available all the time. Mm-hmm. So you want it to have a connection to the grid, which is the utility, in case that these resources are Not there, you can get your energy from the grid. Mm -hmm. So that interface of all of these renewable energy sources now, which what they call modernization of the electric grid, is a big application of power electronics. Mm
1: -hmm. Has that always been your focus, or is that your focus now as far as trying to integrate the renewable energy? Well, that
2: is an application. Okay. But the focus is power electronics research, and it goes into different areas. Mm -hmm. But the renewable is where the funding is available. So, yeah, the the research funding comes according to. And then the transportation is a new funding. That's electric vehicle, hybrid vehicle, plug-in vehicle. All of those are different means of applying power electronics.
1: So, I'm kind of curious. Throughout the years, have you seen, like, peaks and valleys of the funding available for renewable energies or you know, electric vehicles, or has it been kind of steady for you because you're one of the best in the world?
2: <laughs> no, 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 no. I think uh, if you're talking about the general funding of power electronics mm-hmm. nationwide, I think it has been increasing. Okay. It has been increasing. In terms of myself, uh, when I first came here, I was very active in research. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I did a lot of work with NASA and uh, a lot of work with the uh, NSF trying to get funding and so forth. But uh, funding is, is a different ball ballgame. Mm-hmm. It's not really just what you know,
3: mm-hmm.
2: but it is who you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that, that creates, to me, some politics mm-hmm. in, in terms of funding. So I I, I think it's still funding for power electronics is available, but I lately I I am not as active as I used to be mm-hmm. when I first started.
1: Um, would you explain power electronics any differently to you know a five or a seven year old? Right, you're like, oh, well, you gotta wait to <laughs> if
2: they know a battery, <laughs> okay, and a lamp. That's the best I can say. This is this is power, or this is electricity. You connect a lamp to a, a a battery, and then it lights.
1: So you've been involved in a lot in the in the research world and giving back. I think through IEEE a lot. You can obviously tell in your bio. What brings you most satisfaction as a researcher?
2: That's a good question. Actually, what brings me most satisfaction is the publication, mm-hmm. because I think that is what make your work apparent. Mm-hmm. For example, there, there are some people who will bring a lot of funding, mm-hmm. and if that funding does not translate into graduate students mm-hmm. and publications, then it didn't translate into real research. Mm-hmm. So for me, I think I, I see publication is, is a good indication of the grow up of research. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I enjoy it mostly, publication is still. Even when I'm not doing a lot of research, I try to to focus on getting some publications as much as I can. So what brings me more satisfactions is the publications.:
1: Is there anything that you like to accomplish yet that you haven't as a researcher?
2: Well, in terms of service, I would like to to extend my service to the third world, mm-hmm. whether in Africa in particular. Mm-hmm. If I can, uh, and, and that's something that I always think about. When I retire, I would like to do that, the things that I was not able to do. And one of the things that I was not able to do is to deliver to the underrepresented countries in terms of just taking a visit to a country, spend uh, maybe a semester there, not really for gaining money,
3: mm-hmm.
2: although they do respect you very well mm-hmm. and, 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 and they honor the fact that you're coming there and so forth. But um, I think it's more of transfer of knowledge and, and what I can do to help, not necessarily trying to be the boss or to dominate or the chair. Or No, I'm just there as someone as resource. Who, can, who can help. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That is something that I would um, like to um, to achieve mm-hmm. in terms of my research. And also, it could be even in teaching. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing that I did not get, and I could have got it if I pursue it, is to become a fellow. Right, right now, I'm a senior. Mm-hmm. And I think that is where I think politics is, because I'm a person who is um, very outspoken. Mm-hmm. And sometimes this is not a good idea. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. So th- it, this may or may not be connected, but I'm kind of curious. Do so you feel like you have, like, a unique set of challenges being African, you know, as a researcher, an academic, it, just a professional in general?
2: It is a challenge. Mm-hmm. It 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 is a challenge in the sense that you are trying to prove yourself mm-hmm. through your work. Mm-hmm rather than through connections.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And, and that's my attitude to things. Mm-hmm. I, I rather achieve things through my work mm-hmm. rather than just through connection or mm-hmm. through my status as being minority and so forth. Mm-hmm. So that, that didn't kind of bother me much. To okay. me, I wanted to achieve because I can achieve. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I, I didn't look for any special attention. Mm -hmm. But uh, it it does. It does sometimes that I notice, for example, the people who always in the administration of conferences and transactions, they're not really the people who always publish and the people who are active in research. Mm -hmm. But they happen to put themselves into the front as the one who direct the work. Mm -hmm. And that is something, in my opinion, is not fair to the people who do the work Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because those people through the connection, they could get all of these recognitions. Mm -hmm. But then the people who are doing the hard work are not the people who are recognized unless you have a a paper award or stuff like that. But, but it, it, there is, there is that kind of, I may call it politics. It is politics. I think it's politics. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
1: So you said that you want to be known for like, you know, achieving, is there anything that you're most proud of in your career?
2: I think the most thing that I'm proud of is that I was able to get into MIT. Mm-hmm. No, because I think that first, number one, I was the first Sudanese to make it to MIT. Oh, wow. Yeah. And then the second is that when I first started the process, people were telling me like, it's impossible. Mm-hmm. And then once I got it, people were just saying, it's unbelievable that. How did you get that? (laughs) So I think I consider that's a big achievement. And not that. I think it actually, when I joined MIT, the gap between the education that I got at the University of Khartoum and MIT was a big gap. Mm -hmm. And I think I lived to that challenge because I found myself, look, you look for it. You better face it. Mm -hmm. And so my first few years at MIT, because the undergraduate classes are big, and I found what is the gap that I need to fill. Mm -hmm. I can't get credit for it. I can't take courses. But I would like to fill it so that the education in Sudan is not as high as MIT. So I used to, all day, just go from one undergraduate class to an undergraduate class and i collect the material and i collect the, uh, the 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 handouts and and the homeworks and all of that mm-hmm. that helped a lot mm-hmm. listening just to these professors even just getting the knowledge mm-hmm. they're not i'm not taking classes with them but nobody knows who i am and so i i go and just attend <laughs> the classes
1: did I, they know that you were kind of back there like a fly on the wall? Or did no, you, you No, it's a big up.
2: class and i just in the middle. <laughs> nobody knows. <laughs> so I did that for a lot of the undergraduate courses at MIT. Uh-huh. And that actually helped me a lot even in my teaching now mm-hmm. because I collected all of these materials. And then I also became a TA for a number of classes that I felt those classes were challenging to me. Mm-hmm. And to me, the best thing to learn in a class that challenges you is to become a TA for it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I think those are things that I give a lot of credit for my life at MIT mm-hmm. for bringing me to that level.
1: Mm. That's interesting. Um, so I just want to read this, you know, here, cause um, there's this school um, called Stanford university. And they published a study of the world's most cited researchers and those who are among the top 2% of more than 6 million scientists worldwide within their specialty areas throughout their career. And you made that list. I made that list. How does it feel to be recognized as one of the top 2% of researchers in your field? Well, you know,
2: it it brings me joy. Mm -hmm. But it does to me kind of tell what I was telling about the politics. I did face a lot of trouble and enemies within IEEE. Mm-hmm. And because um, I have been very outspoken mm-hmm. in terms of people should be rewarded because of their achievement, mm-hmm. not because of their networking. Mm-hmm. And um, that thing that came from Stanford, the study, just give me the satisfaction mm-hmm. that even I did not get what I want mm-hmm. I do deserve it Mm -hmm. because when I came here and the dean said, whoever become a professional engineer, I will give $500 raise. Mm -hmm. I was the only one who did it. Oh,
1: wow. Yeah, I thought that was interesting.
2: I was the only one who did it. But the Stanford study, it it just makes me happy that I did my part Mm -hmm. at the age of 70. It doesn't matter what happened. <laughs> mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. Well, I just want to take the time to clap for you and probably everybody here in the studio take the time to clap for you because that is amazing. And I'm happy that you got to get recognized for your work, and which is really a testament to who you are, you know. So way beyond, you know, the, the, the politics of it. Make some people mad. I'm all for it. <laughs> um, so. You know, I assume, you know, you mentioned you were 70. You're maybe approaching retirement. Retirement, Do you see that, you know, in the near future? Well,
2: it looks like uh, I may very soon be the oldest not retired faculty (laughs) within the College of Engineering. I think so.
1: Oh, wow. So you being in the top 2%, top 5% has been a theme all of your life (laughs) for like everything.
2: Well, I tried. I mean, in 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 schools, I was the valedictorian or the soliditarian. That's kind of my approach.
1: Oh, wow. So what do you do for fun? What do you enjoy doing outside of work?
2: Well, I used to do soccer until I was 50. Oh, wow. I used to do sports until I was 50. Until one young guy knocked me up on the air. I fell on my wrist. I broke it. Wow. And then my kid said, that's it. (laughs) You're not doing it anymore.
1: So you talked a little bit about your kids, actually. So how many kids do you have? I
2: have four kids, two four kids. two sons, and two daughters.
1: Two daughters. And I'm sure they're making you very proud following in your, your footsteps yeah, as so, far as achievement.
2: Yeah, so they are all grown up. The ages: is 26 to 39.
1: Okay. So any grandchildren?
2: I have two granddaughters.
1: Two granddaughters. How old?
2: Uh, five
1: and three. Okay, little young ones. Little young ones uh, from
2: my old daughter.
1: Uh, so I'm kind of curious. Like, what is your desire? You know, reputation when all when all is said and done.
2: As I said, I I um I think I did a lot of what I wanted to do, especially with regard to my kids mm-hmm. and with regard to my family. And as I said, um, I would love to do more for my society, mm-hmm. especially the underrepresented countries especially in africa mm-hmm. um i'm hoping that i live longer uh i uh it happened to have uh, uh my oldest brother just passed about a month ago at the age of 75 i'm sorry so it is it is i don't know how long is left mm-hmm. but i'm going to do the best i can mm-hmm. oh we know in whatever is left
3: <laughs>
1: yeah <laughs> <laughs> we know you'll do the best you yeah. can so, uh, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised also if you could start some, like, African engineering engineers going back to Africa. Like, you could start some charter.
2: Well, <laughs> I think I'm not sure whether I will start that. But I will definitely, if it is, if it comes uh, as something that I can, I can participate in, I would love to. Mm-hmm. I mean, one thing that gets me satisfaction is I'm not hungry for money. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know a number of people who try to start business Mm -hmm. and gain money on the side. Mm -hmm. And I get this pleasure on the fact that I I have enough to live and and I have done my work. I don't know, even like consulting, I used to do consulting. Now I just wanted to relax. Mm -hmm. I mean, at some point you got to say, I need to relax. And that happened to me in 2015. Mm-hmm. In 2015, I wasn't paying attention to my health. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, out of a sudden, I turned to have a lot of health issues mm-hmm. that I never thought I would have them, whether diabetes or type 2 or whatever. Mm-hmm. So, or eating a lot of potato chips or eating that or, or junk food or whatever. Mm-hmm. I, I would sometimes don't even eat dinner and I just sit in my office and work and work and work. Mhm. That was not good. Mhm. And then it was a good shock to me to slow down. Mm-hmm. So but still if someone started something in which that to people I would I would definitely volunteer.
1: Enjoy. So any last piece of advice or any last sentiments that you like to share? Well,
2: I wanted to say that I enjoyed this. Uh and I think it is it's a good idea to to meet with people and gather these kind of information.
1: Mm-hmm. well thank you for sharing all of your insights today it's definitely been interesting hearing all of your stories and all of the wisdom that you have to bestow through your story so definitely want to take the time to thank you make sure to visit us at uacron.edu forward slash diverse engineering to follow or to share our podcast be sure to tune in every tuesday and join us next tuesday as we speak with dr b audrey Wynn. keep rising
0: We hope that you've enjoyed listening to this episode of Diverse Engineering. I want to thank GPD Group and Continental Contact for their generous support of this podcast series. If you'd like to help ease the financial burden of our diverse graduate students in the College of Engineering and Polymer Science, please consider a donation. We need your help as community sponsors and listeners to support these students in any way you can. To donate, text WIE to 71777 or give online at uacron.edu slash giving WIE. Thank you to podcast host Ebony Bond, podcast editor Daniel Groen, WZIP general manager Chris Kepler, podcast creator Heidi Kressman, and the College of Engineering and Polymer Science for making this podcast a reality. This has been Gary Meller, president of the University of Akron. Go Zips!